We are in number nine of the last days of fallen earth. And I'm just going to open in prayer. This is something. I prayed four different prayers for you a day. I pray them four prayers, uh, four prayers uh, two times. And then two of those prayers I pray three times for a total of ten times a day. And I pray, I pray for the online community and I pray for the members. I pray for non-members that even just come here once a month. Remember how Paul, he said, uh, I do not cease to pray for you making mention of you. You just mention, you can mention a body, you can mention a church and cover it. And here's one of them. Father, I'm confident in this very thing in the name of Jesus Christ that you who have begun a good work in them will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I pray that our love would abound yet more and more and extend to its fullest development and knowledge and all keen insight, that our love would display itself in greater depth of acquaintance and more comprehensive discernment, that we may surely learn to sense what is vital and approve and prize what is excellent and of real value, recognizing the highest and the best, and distinguishing the moral differences. I pray we may be untainted and pure and unerring and blameless so that with hearts sincere and certain and unsullied, we may approach the day of Christ not stumbling or causing others to stumble. May they abound in and be filled with the fruits of righteousness, right standing with God and right doing, which comes only through Jesus, the anointed one, to the honor and praise of him that your glory would be both manifested and recognized in their lives, in the lives of everyone watching online, and in the lives of everyone in this service. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. We're in Daniel chapter 7. And uh, last night, uh, I talked about, I was in Israel with my mom for nine days, and I spent some time talking about that, and unfortunately, it went 62 minutes so this morning, I cut out Israel, and it went 53 minutes. So, uh, yeah, the 9 o'clockers, they are here to get out of here, aren't they? Okay. So, we'll start with Daniel 7.1. Um, I do, uh, on this final hour podcast that we release every Monday night at midnight, I cover the whole trip in Israel. I, I, the whole, I mean, it was just so interesting. The people I got to talk to, I spent probably 10 hours with Billy Brim and her daughter Shelly, and they just pumped stuff into me. I was like taking notes at the dinner table. And I learned so much, and it was, uh, I felt like it was some type of impartation. I realized that quickly, and um, so many other people uh, jumped on a tour for two days with a guy I've never met. His name's Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Kahn, wrote the book Harbinger. And um, I don't know how I wound up on the tour, a bunch of people I didn't know, but God really blessed me. Um, so found out interesting information. Uh, uh, you know, remember a few weeks ago, the Israelis flew in F-16s into Lebanese airspace. It's the first time they had used jets. They were currently bombing Damascus with surface-to-surface missiles, but because the Russians are so strong over there, they've stayed away from that airspace, but when they went into Lebanese airspace with F-16s, and um, they, they hit the uh, suburbs of Damascus, it was an underground f- 
facility run by Iranian militia um, that uh, was, was they, were, they were getting in guidance systems for their missiles to make their missiles more accurate. And the Israelis found out where it was, used the planes for the first time in a while, um, and uh, they killed two uh, high-ranking Iranian Republican uh, revolutionary guards. Revolutionary guards is what they're called. Very high-ranking. What were they doing there? I thought it was just militia. Well, then, uh, the big funeral, that was actually on some of the news stations that they held for these guys. All the high-ranking Iranian brass showed up, vowed revenge on Israel. And a lot of people don't know this, but they just, while I was in Israel, the Iranians shot surface-to-surface missiles from Iran into Iraq and hit a small U.S. intelligence base. When's the last time (laughs) Iran has made any aggressive move to the United States. So things are definitely getting interesting. The Iran, Iran will be the second biggest player in Ezekiel 38. Um, and so learned a lot of stuff over there. I mean, that's just not on the news. You're not going to see it. It's all Ukraine, Russia, which you need to pay attention to. But uh, Daniel 7.1 will start in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Let's understand when Daniel had his dream, chapter 7 takes place before some of these other chapters we've gone through. It's not, they're not all in order. It's before the fall of Babylon, um, before Daniel in the lion's den. Um, you know, the, remember the handwriting on the wall? Uh, chap, the famous handwriting on the wall chapter I, I preached out on a Saturday night. Sometimes Daniel 7 through 12, those chapters are called the second book of Daniel. And while these dreams and prophecies and visions that Daniel has to deal with uh, in the first six chapters deals with different empires a lot of times, chapters 7 through 12 are mainly occupied with the predictions of the fourth beast which pertain to the latter days. I read one commentator said that this vision took place about three years before the lion's den happened. So Daniel 7, 2, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. One scholar says that four winds of heaven refers to wars, strife, and judgment. But you can also imagine, you can visualize as little winds blowing over that Mediterranean sea over there. But the winds, if you look at it in the Hebrew, is the same word as they use for, as, as they use for spirit. And so the Jewish Tanakh says there, are, there were four different spiritual forces that correspond to the four kingdoms in chapter 2. It seems as if all commentators and the Jewish Tanakh agree that the phrase strove upon the great sea refers to large numbers of people. That's common in the Bible common phrase, an idiom for, for the people of the world. And so Daniel 7, 3, the four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. So these four beasts represent four kingdoms. And one commentator read, believes that the beasts we are about to look at are the fallen angels behind these kingdoms. You know, Russia has a principality above it. An angel that fell with Satan, very, very strong, right? Many countries, France, and 
They all have something. A mosque in Indonesia, there's a principality over it, guarantee it. If you could see it in the spirit. You know, I'm not saying that uh, that's, um, that's what it is, but that's probably one of the major beliefs. In Daniel 7, 4, the first vision, the first beast that he saw in his vision was like a lion had eagle's wings, and I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man. A man's heart was given to it. If we could show that lion um, what, what, he, what he saw. And so, you know, this should, you should be getting this online because we paid for these pictures so that you could get them online. It's not a copyright issue. And I've shown this to the Saturday night service before in, in the first, first, uh, first message I did in, on this series. And, you know, um, but I want to go a little bit deeper into it and in the same end, just kind of pound it in so you never forget it. Um, and so that's the lion. Uh, remember now the lion represents, with the wings, represents Babylon. The eagle's wings represent the rapid pace which with the Babylonian empire ascended. The wings being plucked from that lion refer to Daniel chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. Where, uh, you know, that's a, remember Nebuchadnezzar wrote that chapter. He's the only Gentile king in the Bible that, that wrote a, chap, a whole chapter, right? And it basically, when he got his wings plucked, that's when he went insane for seven years. And the phrase, standing upon his feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to him, refers to when Nebuchadnezzar not only getting his sanity back, but uh, a new heart was given to him. His kingdom was restored to him. The last time we hear from Nebuchadnezzar, he sends a decree out all over his kingdom proclaiming Jehovah as the true God. When we were uh, in Israel, I asked Billy Brim, you think you're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? She said, absolutely not. And I said, well, what, what the last words we hear from him, he proclaims Jehovah as the one true God, and then, and then he died a year later. And she said, well, we'll just see when we get up there, Jim. I don't think he's going to be there. <laughs> we all have people that we're going to go see when we get in heaven. You know, you guys are probably all going to go run see Peter, John, and Paul. and I'm going to go see Nebuchadnezzar and Darius from the Lion's Den chapter and see if Cyrus the Great might be up there. That's who I'm going to hunt down. Then I'm going to go looking for Adam. If they let me on his compound, because it's probably well guarded. It's very clear that this lion represents the Babylonian Empire. Let's go ahead and put that statue up from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You know, this is from chapter 2. You guys didn't get this one, did you? Okay, Sunday morning. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in chapter 2. He dreamed of a really majestic statue. This just kind of breaks it down. Daniel interpreted the dream. And you can see that the, the head of gold represents the Babylonian Empire, as well, well as the first creature he sees in his vision, right with the lion with the wings. Um, because really what this dream and visions are that Daniel had is another form of the statue. It's almost like God confirming it so we would really get it. 
showing what it looks like in the spirit, giving us more information. So if you contrast Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, he sees the four empires in his dream as this glorious majestic statue and the kingdom of the Messiah as the mountain of stone that grows, you know. And you've got Daniel seeing these kingdoms as wild beasts. And like I said, he's probably seeing the principalities behind these kingdoms, what they looked like, the actual fallen angels. And verse 5, behold, another beast, a second like a bear, and it raised up itself on one side. Remember that phrase? And it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it, and they said, Thus unto it arise, devour much flesh. A bear is much more ponderous than a lion. If we could get the image of the bear. Image of the bear. So that's a bear. Don't you say, I just love these pictures. You guys paid for those pictures. Thank you. So we could teach you with these pictures. And the, the, the per, but it doesn't help. It just helps when you can see the picture. And, you know... If we could look at the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, as you can see on that statue, um, you know, the Persians are the second thing down. If we could look at that statue now from, from the dream in chapter 2, you see that, that, the, that the, the breast and arms of, of, of silver, okay, breastplate of silver represents the Persian empire as well as the bear. And the bear, the reason I think a lot of commentators believe the bear is representing the Persian Empire, because uh, they move slow. They, they move slow. They were extremely strong. The Persian king Xerxes boasted an army of two and a half million men at one point, which is really large even by today's standards. It took the Persians a long time to do anything with two and a half million men because their armies were so big. Can you imagine what it was like when he marched? Many scholars think it was an army of two and a half million fighting men all the way to Greece. It took them six months to get across the desert, two and a half million men. And uh, then they had to cross the Aegean Sea. It was genius how they did it. They lined up a bunch of ships and anchored them in, connected them together, and that army just walked right across that sea. And... Um, there, hence the famous battle of Marathon, uh, where it said approximately 50,000 Athenians and Palatian Greeks defeated Xerxes, two and a half million man army. It's one of the most famous battles ever fought because uh, is it really a miracle? If the Persians would have won that little deal, I, we would live in a totally different world right now. We'd live in a totally different world. Uh, you could say the Greek tactics were incredible because they had spent centuries fighting each other. Also, from centuries of fighting each other, they had incredible armor that the Persians did not have. Um, they also chose where the fight happened. It was on a beach. The massive Persian army was not able to engulf them from the sides because you had an ocean. It was right next to the ocean. They couldn't use their horses. They were famous for their cavalry. The Persians were. Um, the Greeks... Some of you probably know this. Behind all that armor, they had these really long spears. And, you know, the second row would have a spear behind the first guy, a guy in the first row, and they just pushed these spears, and they just literally mowed down hundreds of thousands of Persians as they would just throw 10,000 at them at a time. 
Um, and the Persians came back 10, day, 10 years later before Alexander. The great even showed up. The Greeks beat them again. This time it was on the sea also. And this isn't a history lesson, but just, to, just think about this. The Persians moving all two and a half million men across that desert for six months. Think of all the food and the water, the carts, miles and miles of animals pulling carts, food, uh, water, food and water for the animals, for their cavalry. Uh, and it was such a large army, but they were very slow, very ponderous. Um, Cyrus conquered a lot of places just showing up with that kind of army and the place would see the army and just give up. He didn't even have to fight, right? And so the bear represents the Persian empire that raised itself up on one side means that the strength of the Persians ultimately was greater than the Medes. Remember, it's called Medo-Persia. But by the end, it was pretty much just Persian, okay? Just let's look at that bear one more time just because I think it's cool. And look, you've got the ribs. Uh, most po- commentators believe the three ribs in the mouth symbolizes the Persians' conquest of Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. It was their first three big victories. This, uh, think about this, you guys. Because these dreams and visions that had Daniel had these animals representing these kingdoms, it was before they ever happened. Okay. That's why people say the book of Daniel can't be true. He had to write it after the fact, um, which has been disproven. I've talked about in other services on Saturday night, something called the Greek Septuagint. Um, It's proof that this stuff was written far before it happened. It was a widely circulated Old Testament. Um, So... You know, the night that Daniel was reading the handwriting on the wall, he was prophesying to Darius of Belshazzar. Um, he was aware that the Persians were, that the bear was taking over the lion. The, the Persians were coming into Babylon. Um, verse 6, after this I beheld, lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. If we could show the leopard, and if we could show the, the statue, uh, first let's look at the le- leopard, four heads, four wings, and it represents Greece, right, which was the next, gee, what a coincidence, the next empire, and before it ever happened, and, um, you know, if we show the statue image, remember, this was 15 years earlier than this, uh, even a lot, much longer. Daniel was a young man, 18. He was only about 18, 20 years old when he interpreted this dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And the Greeks, you know, they are the, um, you know, they are the, the thighs of brass, the belly and thighs of brass. So they're the third thing. Well, just like that, the third creature that shows up in Daniel's vision represents the Greeks. The leopard with the wings is symbolizing or possibly the spirit behind the Greek empire. Remember now, this had, none of this had happened yet. So if you look at this, he, he, he calls the Babylonian empire, which was in place, but then he tells Nebuchadnezzar as a young man that really 60-something years later, the next group, Persians, next group, Greeks defeat the Persians, 
Um, really, if you, if you study it out, the, the Roman Empire finished off what was the last of the Greek Empire, way after, a long time after Alexander died. And then you have the feet and toes of, of iron and clay. That's the only empire that has not come yet. But I would say that he prophesied all these things out hundreds of years in advance. That's what makes this book so incredible. Okay? So none of this had happened yet. And so no one could foresee all these little Greek city-states, the Spartans, the Athenians, uh, Thessalonians, uh, Macedonia, Boeotia. Uh, there's like five or six more. All those guys were always killing each other over there. No one ever unified them until Alexander came around. No one would have called them being able to defeat the per Persians two times. Then Alexander, and Alexander from the north, a little province called Macedonia, conquers all the Greek city-states for the first time. And then walks into Persia and just, just annihilates them quickly, quickly. And so the four heads on the leopard are speaking of how uh, when Alexander died at 32 years old, the empire was split between Alexander's four generals, okay? The four wings symbolizes the swiftness. I mean, by the time he was 32, it was over. He had already conquered the world by the time he was 29. And those four kingdoms, those generals split up as kingdoms. They split into Greece, Thrace, Syria, and Egypt. Okay? We talked about the Persians just being a massive empire with massive armies. And they were kind of slow, you could say ponderous, in regards to military strategy. But if you study them, the, the, the Persians are very wasteful of human life because they had so many. And they would just hit you with wave after wave after wave. And they didn't care how many they lost because they had millions. And eventually they would just overrun you. But the, the Greeks were very different. You know, Alexander's army sometimes were 20,000 strong. It's, it's it. It's all he had. And the leopard with the wings, it was really amazing with the speed which the Greeks conquered Persia and then the world. Alexander the Great's military strategy and tactics happened 2,300 years ago. They're still studied today at some modern war colleges. He was definitely a genius. It's believed by some commentators and scholars that it wasn't just him, that Alexander the Great was helped by a fallen angel that was one of the most powerful in Satan's armies that shows up again in Revelation. I'm not saying it's true or untrue, but I'm just telling you, I, there's a lot, so much on this. I'm trying to give you a broad view some commentators believe that that leopard, which John sees that leopard in Revelation, he sees a leopard. And it's the same spirit they believe because one of his heads was wounded when he sees him in Revelation. And they're saying that fallen angel that had one of his heads wounded was wounded when Alexander died. It was helping Alexander. And, you know, obviously Alexander wouldn't have known he was helped by one of the most powerful angels in Satan's armies. We know from secular history, Alexander definitely thought it was his own intelligence and ability. And those scholars think that it's the same beast that comes out of that pit in Revelation 17.8. Comes out of the pit because these commentators believe that the beast was locked up in the bottomless pit after the death of Alexander. And the phrase in Revelation 17.8 says, it shall ascend out of the bottomless pit.
These commentators believe that in the very near future, when this particular fallen angel, the same one that was responsible for Alexander the Great's quick success, will be released to help the Antichrist. Because also they take the phrase in Revelation 17.8, it ends the verse, it says, it goes into perdition. You know, in the son of perdition? And so, Revelation 17, 8, it's talking about this leopard with a wounded head. Okay? The beast that thou sawest was, is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. Go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. Some commentators think that go into perdition there at the and the mid-verse means that the plans of Satan in regard to the Antichrist and the help he will give him, he gives him through this fallen angel. And they believe it's the same one that gave Alexander Great his power. I mean, what, he would lead from the front, you know, which the chances of him being killed. You know, he basically rode his horse right to the middle of everybody he fought. He was the first one in there, and, and, but yet somehow... If you study him, and it's all documented, he would make quick decisions. He would look at a battlefield, boom, 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 and make moves. Right before. You don't even have a megaphone. You don't have, you don't have walkie-talkies. It must have been an incredible communication system. But to be able to look at the other army and say, this needs to happen, that needs to happen, this needs to happen, that needs to happen, let's go. And he was just gifted that way. And so, I know our stream doesn't necessarily believe part of this about that same demon but I think it's helpful for you to know what some people in the assemblies of God believe, because some people, those people are very knowledgeable. Think about this. Alexander, at age 29, fell on his bed crying because there were no more worlds left to conquer. I'm sorry, Alexander. That's documented by Josephus. When he died at 32 years old on his deathbed, they asked who should succeed him, and he said, give it to the strong. And that's where the four generals... The four heads on the leopard come in. And we'll read about that because Daniel prophesies about them and every war they had against each other in chapter 11 before it ever happens. Verse 7, after this I saw the night visions, beheld a fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, strong, exceedingly, great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. It was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. Now we have the fourth beast, and Daniel can just describe it as dreadful, terrible, strong, and exceedingly. This is the Roman Empire, which followed the Grecian Empire. Wow, what a coincidence. He got that right, too. Right? Let's, let's, he couldn't even, it was so wicked looking, he couldn't even describe it. So we, some people did some art on it. Let's put up the fourth piece. I saw you guys at the airport yesterday, but I was in a hurry. Sorry, I didn't say hi. Sorry. Okay. If you match this up with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, you would see that on that statue that we've been showing you, the Roman Empire was the legs of iron. All right? That's what represented the Roman Empire in chapter 2. Well, we'll notice that in Daniel's vision, it had great iron teeth. The phrase, diverse from all the beasts, is what it says. It is believed because their government was more diverse. It wasn't always necessarily what Caesar said went. Where the Babylonian king, I mean, if you didn't, you know, 
he'd kill you. You said anything bad about him, you kill, he'd kill you, right? But remember, the Senate murdered Julius Caesar on the steps of the Senate. They all attacked him at one time. But it's, so it's a more diverse government. More importantly, the verse ends with the fact that it had 10 horns, that beast. The 10 horns refer to the present time or what we are soon to be seeing in the near future. Billy Brun guarantees me the 10 horns is the European Union or an offshoot. You go on the a World Economic Forum website, I thought it was interesting, they show 10 flags. This is 10 nations that come together and they will come together somewhere in the old territory that the old Roman Empire had. So the Bible is very clear on this. Notice that when it talks about the old Roman Empire, before it talks about the 10 horns, the verse says it devoured broken pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. Remember the Roman soldiers had those spikes on the bottom of their sandals so when the enemy went down, they'd just step on them. The Roman Empire, we talked about this, was different. Remember Nebuchadnezzar, when, we took Jerusalem, when he took Jerusalem, it took three sieges to finally get total control. He found the best of the Jewish kids. It said they were the best looking. They were really smart. It said they were really talented. He takes them back to Babylon, gives them a three-year education, tries to merge them into his court, into the Babylonian court, into their culture, because obviously he thought they could help him. Persians, in the same way, look at Cyrus the Great. They didn't destroy things. A lot of times they let people keep their religions. The Persians took Babylon, which was the most beautiful city in the world, and they didn't touch it. They left it standing. They didn't touch it. But Rome was famous for just killing everybody and everything, turning their soldiers loose to rape and pillage. They tried to crush the religions if they could. And so that's what that phrase means. As we talked about, verse 7 ends with the phrase, and it had 10 horns. These horns have nothing to do with the original conquest of the Roman Empire, of the original Roman Empire. The 10 horns of the 10 nation alliance, which I think is right in front of us. I even wonder if the 10 nation confederation will rise after Ezekiel 38 war, which is coming. Um... Who knows what the Ezekiel 38 war is? Raise your hand. I'm just curious what to preach on next week. Wow. I think I just found out what to preach on. This is another war that's coming. Russia's not done, even if it looks like they're losing the Ukraine. They're not done. Okay? The Bible prophesies this very clearly. But the events of this chapter, which are symbolizing the latter days and the succeeding chapters, and we're going to look at that, will take place mostly in the Middle East or in parts of Europe. A side note here, if Russia does not have a great outcome in the Ukrainian war, that does not matter. They have just built a large, huge naval base on the Mediterranean Sea in Syria. There's a lot that goes on into building a navy base. It's not like just putting a landing strip down. It takes millions of dollars. and just There's so much that goes into that. They are there to stay. I have a friend that was an Israeli commando in their armed forces. He's actually spoken here at Living Word. Back when we used to have those fifth services, 
Back when they were, they were educating, you know, they were talking about the Gaza Strip and all that, you know, and they, 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 they don't educate the college kids correctly what's really going on. So we brought him over with video and everything to show us what was going on in the Gaza Strip. Well, he says it's a well-known thing that the Russians are completely in charge of the nation of Syria. That guy Assad is just a puppet. Putin does whatever he wants. He owns that country. Win or lose in Ukraine, Russia will be at Israel's doorstep with a lot of friends. Obviously, if they can't take the Ukraine, the Bible says he brings a lot of friends with him. Whether it's Putin in charge or not, it's a spirit over Russia called Gog. Bible names it. Doesn't matter if Putin's in charge. Whoever's in charge will bring Russia south. They will be on Israel's border with Iran, with Turkey, with Sudan, Germany, that's disputed between scholars, Libya. Uh, win or lose in the Ukraine, Russia will be at Israel's doorstep with a lot of friends, I believe, very soon, and I believe it will be before the rapture. And we explain how it really has to be before the rapture if you look at the happenings in Ezekiel 39. See, a lot of scholars think Ezekiel 38 war is the same as Armageddon. They're so wrong about that. In Armageddon, two-thirds of the Jews are killed, raped, pillaged. Only one-third of the population lives, the Jewish population. Ezekiel, it's very clear. They don't even get set foot in that country, and they're destroyed. Those armies are destroyed, okay? It's two totally different wars. We see Daniel considering the horns in, in verse 8. I considered the horns and beheld. There came up among them another little horn. Behold, before whom there were three of the first horns. Remember the ten horns? Three of those were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth speaking great things. You see, Daniel, considering the horns, his attention is drawn to the horns on the beast. Let's show the uh, image of the fourth beast again. Fourth beast. See, he's got that crown of horns. But as we can see, he notices there came up among them so it wasn't originally there. He sees another little horn. Can we see the picture of the little horn, the image of the little horn? Now in the Bible and in many, many ancient writings, horns are symbolic of authority, power, strength. Psalm 92.10, uh, my horn, strength, you have exalted like a wild ox. I've been anointed with fresh, fresh oil. Or some translations say, my horn, you have exalted like the horn of a unicorn. It means strength, okay? I'm just going to tell you the little horn is the Antichrist. The phrase, before whom there were three of the first ten horns plucked up by the roots, that is the Antichrist coming against the ten-nation coalition of countries, and he defeats three of those nations in battle, quickly, swiftly, brutally. And just the fact that you've got the phrase... And in this horn were eyes like a, eyes of a man. That's telling you this is a man. Just looking at this fourth beast, it's describing the original Roman Empire, which has come and gone, but the ten horns have not risen yet. All those ten nations represented by the ten horns are all going to be located somewhere in the territory that the old Roman Empire had. So if you look at a map of what old Rome uh, at their peak which was most of the world, these nations, these nations in the, Billy Brim calls it the revised Roman Empire that we haven't seen yet, 
will greatly oppose Israel. We see anti-Semitism really rising if you're paying attention. But when we look at the phrase in verse 8, there came up among them another little horn, not only tells us that the little horn rises after the original ten horns, it says that the Antichrist himself will be from somewhere in that area. The territory was the old Roman Empire. And Daniel is given another series of visions, as we'll be able to get to, that narrows down the area where the, where the Antichrist comes from. A lot of commentators think they can nail the country. Well, I've talked about it on Saturday night. I'll just say a lot of commentators believe they know exactly where the Antichrist is coming from. But I don't completely buy that. But the Antichrist is going to defeat three of those nations in battle. And there are other commentators that think they can narrow down what three countries those are. By the, the Bible is this detailed. And we'll talk about that when, when we get there. I've talked about it a little bit with Saturday night. But he defeats three of them brutally. The other seven in the ten nation confederation just say, you can have it. Take us. So he takes over the ten-nation confederation. Just think about this. What a coincidence. He calls Babylon, Daniel's twice, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now in his own dreams, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans. I think the next one's coming. The feet and toes of iron and clay made up that last empire in the statue. Okay? Okay. Commentators believe that the Antichrist will be able to see things those other men might not necessarily be able to see. He's be a genius. That's why these commentators think he's aided by that same demon that caused Alexander to see stuff that other people couldn't see quickly. Because of the number of times in the Bible the Antichrist is speaking great things, you see it all over, like 10 times. He'll be a very good orator. Verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. The phrase, the thrones being cast down. Oh, there's so, many conflict, so much conflict and commentary on this. Even the thrones in Ephesians, and I see so much. Uh, but that actually, that, that thrones being cast down is a mistranslation. It should read, thrones being set in place. So you would read, I beheld till the thrones were set in place, which changes the whole meaning. If you've got, what, what about all the 24 thrones in Revelation? Okay. There's just a lot that goes on here, right? And so, but it goes on and it describes uh, uh, the ancient of days, which is our God. That's one of his names, the ancient of days. I've been calling him that. I've been saying, I've got a blood covenant with the ancient of days. Any, at any time I take communion, that's how I look at it. Just one comment on verse 9. His throne was like a fiery flame and his wheels as a burning fire. Is very similar to the vision. Sounds like the description of the vision Ezekiel had of the throne of God. Remember? It had wheels. Daniel 7.10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. The ancient of days. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him. 10,000 times, 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set. The books were open. M most commentators believe that I looked at says that this verse, verse 10, pertains to the judgment of the nations, which takes place immediately after the second coming of Christ. 
The fiery stream issue that came forth from before him speaks of the glory of God and basically speaks beyond our ability to understand or imagine. It was coming out of his throne. The phrase in verse 10, thousands, thousands ministered unto him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, refers to the angels of God who were present to carry out the decisions of the judgment. And the books that are open, we're talking about the judgment of nations are written down. Everything carried out. Everything they've done is nations written down. Um, everything these nations have accomplished in regards to how they treated Israel. Okay? A lot of confusion on the judgment of nations. And let's just be straight. Uh, I, I, I just, to, to, for, for people to say that God's going to send little children growing up in the church, tribulation to hell because their nation is from never treated Israel right remember when God was thinking about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah and what did Abraham say shall not the God of all judgment do right you know it's not what's going to happen I was asking Billy Brem no one knows you know how many people I've asked this exactly how that's going to work and don't write in and tell me. I've read all the different things, right? You're, it, you know, the, the, it's going to be the people in the tribulation that receive it. Maybe that land gets uh, evacuated. Maybe it's not prosperous anymore. Maybe everybody has to move out of that land. I don't know. But we know that that was talking about the judgment of nations is the opinion of most scholars. Verse 11 I beheld in, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, his body destroyed, given to the burning flame. Takes us back to the Antichrist. So just quickly walking through these verses, you've got two names of the Antichrist. He's called the horn. He's called the beast. Just some of the other names quickly throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New. He's called the king of Babylon, the Assyrian, the, the, the prince, in Daniel 9, the fierce king, the willful king. In Daniel 11, the king of the north. In the New Testament, you have him called the man of sin, the son of perdition, the lawless one, the wild beast. Are all names the Bible gives the Antichrist. The great words that the Anti speaks will be the greatest words of evil that have ever been known. And there will be an anointing on them. Okay? Because there's nothing. We're gone. We're out. There's nothing holding him back. There's nothing holding him back. Okay, But the Antichrist is killed at the Battle of Armageddon. You wonder if he's such a smart guy, can he just read these scriptures? There's no doubt that he read the scriptures. But obviously he does not believe. He will, he will just not believe that he's, what's being said in the Bible about him and never does succeed in bringing the entirety of the world under his authority. Verse 12, as concerning the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged. What does that mean? Well, the lion, the bear, the leopard, okay? The, the beast that was so scary looking he couldn't describe it. They lost their power. But you had offshoots of those. The Dutch had a little empire. The English, the Germans, the French, the Ottoman Turks. So that's what it means when parts of them were prolonged for a season. 13 and 14. I saw in the night vision, behold, one... One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, came to the Antichrist of days, ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion. 
which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Oh, there's so much to say here because when that happens, just think these people have all lived through the tribulation, right? It says at first he's going to have to rule with a rod of iron. It's going it's, it's to be the world that's been under complete confusion and destruction. And uh, what, about the, what about the, well, there's so much I want to say. What about in Revelation, that wormwood thing that poisons the waters? One-third of the earth die from what? From po- well, NASA's got an, a giant asteroid says it's going to hit in April 2029. They're calling it wormwood. That's a Shemitah year, you too. That's, the rapture only comes in a Shemitah year. That means 2022 or 2029. All these people out there trying to predict it. Jimmy Evans says it's September 22nd, September 25th, 2022. Yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? And then uh, he says if it doesn't come that Shemitah year, then we have to wait till 2029 in April because it has to come in the Feast of Trumpets. The Bible's clear about these things. The Bible says you can know the season, you just won't know the day. So you see all these people out here trying. But so the whole thing about the Shemitah year is a lot of the Jews think, well, the Shemitah year is going to be off a year because Joshua stopped the sun for a day. He stopped the sun. So what that caused is a year difference by the time you add it up all over these years. So you'll never hear me predict anything. A lot of people predicted 2022, 2029. Wouldn't that be something? April 2029, billion people go up in the rapture, and then the wormwood hits the earth, poisons all the waters, that asteroid poisons the waters, and, and one-third one third of the people, one-fourth of the people die on earth from drinking that water. That's what it says in Revelation. It's very clear. So the Son of Man here, did I read verse 13 and 14? Did, did you guys even know what I'm doing? You know what I'm talking about. Am I just kind of droning on and on? Does it feel like that? Okay. Behold, the Son of Man. Okay, no, we didn't read that. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Oh, yeah, we read this. Okay. And so the Son of Man here is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus takes that phrase often in the Gospels for himself. It's a very distinctive name for him because we're talking about the creator of the world incarnate as the Son of Man. So all the other kingdoms that we've talked about are scheduled for destruction or have been destroyed, but not his kingdom. This is talking about the second coming and then him establishing his kingdom, and it will last forever. Remember in Matthew 4, Luke 4, when Jesus had the personal meeting with the devil, and Satan actually boasted to Jesus that all the people and nations were his. And he said he could give them to whoever he wanted. Remember that? So Jesus did not challenge the devil on this boast of ownership. If it was an empty boast, it would not have been considered a temptation. And the proposition that he offered to Christ, he's going to offer to another man. And the Antichrist will not turn him down. He will accept the offer. And if we could just look at the sculpture of Jesus Christ, this is how... All dominion, glory, peoples, nations, languages are given to him because he purchased them right here. Purchased it by giving his body as a sacrifice and then being raised from the dead. But to come out from under that authority of the devil, because the Bible is very clear, if you do not have Jesus in your heart, you're a child of the devil, 
even if you're a really nice guy. You know? You, you, all you have to do is accept Jesus into your heart. You don't have to worry about any of this. Okay? Shouldn't scare you. Shouldn't scare you over there. It shouldn't scare you. You should look pretty scared over there. At, at, at verses 13 and 14 are actually uh, him taking a total and complete possession of what he purchased. Okay? Verse 15, and Daniel was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body and the visions of my head troubled me. He's actually presenting his spirit man as separated from his physical body here. Okay? And he was just blown away by the significance of what he'd just seen. In the big picture of things, the dark, dark implications for the Gentiles and the Jews. So he was troubled to his core. Verse 16, and we see that someone is present there. Okay? I came near unto one of them, and that stood by. That means more than one of them were standing there. And asked him the truth of all this. He told me and made me to know the interpretation of things. Most people think this is Gabriel. Gabriel was usually the messenger. Verse 17, these great beasts, which are four, four kings. He's just, this is the angel talking now. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Verse 18, the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom, possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. This refers to the saints who have lived before, both Jew and Gentile. These rule and reign with Christ. Multiple scriptures talk about it. It's also referring to Israel, which will be made up of natural men and women who have gotten through the tribulation, which the Bible says one-third of them make it, two-thirds of them die, and they will reign as the supreme nation. It will be one world. Supreme nation is one world under Christ. Verse 19, then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, nails of brass, that's a new one which devoured many breaking pieces and stamped the residue with his feet. So we have in verse 19, we're talking about that fourth beast again. It's got a new characteristic, nails of brass. Remember, that's the old Roman Empire. You can see why this particular empire, the Roman Empire, was considered the most dreadful. Countless thousands of Christians perished in different coliseums in horrific ways. Nero lit his gardens up with Christians burning on on poles as candles. So what he, how he lit his gardens. He was crazy. Nero was crazy. And we know that the fourth beast was the reason for Daniel's emotional concern. 20 and 21. The ten horns that were on his head and the other which came up were still on the angel now. And before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth and spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows, I beheld that same horn made war with the saints. Prevailed against them. In verse 20, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows, is not long from making his worldwide debut. The spirit that ushers him in is already in the world and increasing daily, the Antichrist spirit. Unfortunately, we have the kingdom now people and the millennialists, and some of them are incredible preachers, worldwide, known worldwide that believe the false doctrine that both Daniel and the book of Revelation have already been fulfilled. And for the most part, this false doctrine also teaches that we're now entering the golden age of Christianity, where it will be Christians gaining political control over the whole world. Okay. 
And the world slowly becomes dominated by Christianity. Yes, there's going to be a latter rain. Yes, there's going to be the power of God, but it's going to get evil too. And you need to be a watchman. You need to pay attention, the Bible says, very clear. It really doesn't matter what they believe because the world is headed towards the advent of the Antichrist, the Armageddon, and for us, the rapture. Okay, looking at verse 21, again, the horn is the Antichrist. This verse is making war against the saints. I read a commentator saying, oh, that's the Jews. No, this is the saints. I believe that get saved under a different set of circumstances than us. This is the post-rapture church. A lot of people are going to be smart and seek God and get saved in the tribulation, refuse the mark of the beast. And it says the Antichrist is going to try to kill them. And he's going to be very successful. And if you read the Bible letter for letter, not one person gets through. You're not going to be able to go hide in northern Canada. They're going to be able to find you. Okay? And it says they'll cut off your head. So it's just really good to believe in the rapture now. Okay? All right? It's smart to believe this. That's why we're teaching it. This verse in verse 21, the war spoken of here, one commentator says, it concerns the Antichrist signing a seven-year non-aggression pact with Israel. Remember, we're gone for this. Right in the middle of that seven years, which is the tribulation, he breaks the agreement, declares war on Israel, actually will defeat Israel. That will be Israel's first defeat since becoming a nation in 1948. And according to the Bible, this is the only time that Israel will be defeated since it became a nation in the 1948. This verse, if you really look deeply into it, is the first of the proofs that the church does not go through the tribulation because the people here, the Antichrist prevails against. Daniel 7:22. until the Ancient of Days came, the judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. So obviously we have the judgment here is going to be by God. All the blessings that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament finally come upon Israel at this time. If you look at a map of what he actually gave them, what he gave to Abraham and then Isaac and then, and then Jacob, it was most of the Middle East. Okay? It's, it's more or less most of the Middle East. So we have the angel, I believe it's Gabriel. Here he is talking still. Thus he said the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom up upon earth shall be diverse from all the kingdoms, shall devour the whole earth, and tread it down and break it to pieces. Roman Empire. 24. And then the ten horns. This is not here yet. Out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them. And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three of these kings. Remember we talked about this? So the angel is translating this. Based on these two verses, we now know that 10-nation confederation, you know, is going to be the EU. If you look at the EU passports, Billy Brim sat me down over there for three hours and showed me Brussels. That is their capital. They don't even hide what they want to be. It, it's crazy. They don't even hide it. If you read their stuff, if you read their literature, okay, and it's going to be a one-world government. That's what they're shooting for with a one-world currency. What's the world is even pushing right now? 80% of all the money that's ever been printed in the United States has been printed in the last two years. 80% of that paper money has been printed. Two years. Why would they do that? To devalue the dollar. 
We have our government trying to sanction parts of the cryptocurrency. Why? Because when Canada froze the bank accounts up there, if you're paying attention, they were able to freeze, their government was able to freeze their some of their citizens' bank accounts. They didn't agree with what they were saying. Well, then they found out the citizens were getting money through the cryptocurrency, which was not in their bank. So suddenly our government wants to put certain sanctions on the cryptocurrency. Gee, I wonder why. Gee, I wonder why. Looking at verse 24, the Antichrist will come out of these 10 nations. A lot of people say it's going to be 11 nations because it says he arises after the 10, okay? And somehow he gets an army. And we have him defeating three of those 10 kings. If you study 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 very carefully, verses 1 through 8, you'll realize that a precondition for the Antichrist being revealed is the rapture of the church. Can we show that, that podcast slide? We, we, this is downloading Monday night. Show, okay, there it is. You can read it. www.thefinalhourpodcast.com. We talk about stuff like this. We break down 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8, and tell you, me and you will not know who the Antichrist is until we will not know. We are the one, it actually says we're withholding him. We are, we are actually withholding him. Okay? And I talk about the whole Israel trip, all that, but we go a lot deeper into it on that podcast. Daniel 7, 25, and he shall speak great words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of times. Who knows what that means? Raise your hand. The phrase in verse 25, he shall speak great words against the Most High is the same expression in Revelation 13. Until a time and times and dividing of time is translated, just, just trust me on this. Trust me on it. Three and a half years. That's what that's translated. Okay? That's three and a half years. All right? And they shall be given into his hand. Who? The saints. Until for three and a half years is what that's saying. That's the last three and a half years going to get really bad. Really bad. You got the same time period that's called 42 months in a Revelation 11.3. Daniel 12.6 calls it 1260 days. That's half of the seven year period. Three and a half years. Really what the Holy Spirit, he does everything except put it into minutes, seconds, and nanoseconds. He puts it in days, he puts it in years, he puts it in months, three and a half years, 1260 days, 42 months is literally the most documented amount of time in the whole Bible. And that time is on our horizon. I'll try to spell it real quick. The verse time, verse 25 means one year. Think about times is written in Aramaic, Daniel 2 through 7. They don't have, they have, like we don't have a plural like if it's two, it's plural in, 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 our, in our language. But in the Aramaic, there's a duo. That, there's, a, there's something that means two, and that's what this means. It means two, duo, right? means two years. And dividing of time, well, that's half a year, three and a half years. That's how you get three and a half years. We know that during this time, Israel is given into the hand of the Antichrist. They suffer terrible persecution. Two-thirds of their population is destroyed because of the uh, seven-year tribulation. I've seen commentators say they, Israel accepts him as their Messiah. 
And, 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 and why they say this? They believe he has to have, Antichrist has to have uh, Israeli blood. Okay? And, and you know, at first my mom didn't believe any of this. I was like, Mom, I'm reading all this stuff. That the Antichrist would be Jew. Oh, Jim, he's not going to be Jewish. <laughs> but I kept reading. All right? And she argued with me until she talked to Marie Helene, our little friend over there in France. You helped support the church over there, who was a serious end times expert. She convinced my mom, not me that the Antichrist will have Israeli blood. I don't know if Marie Helene believes that the Jewish people will actually call him Messiah, but we do know he walks into the third temple. There's gonna be four total temples, sits down on the throne 42 months in after just pillaging Israel. All these things are on the horizon, you guys. Is it the fall of 2022? Is it the spring of 2029? Is it the year before that or the year after that? I don't know. But the Christ, you know, the, most of the Christian church has no idea and doesn't care. 26 through 28, but the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy until the end. The kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom and the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high, whose kingdom is everlasting kingdom. All dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me. My countenance changed in me, and I kept the matter in my heart. So as we close here, the judgment shall sit, refers to the throne of God. And the judgment from that throne will be passed upon the Antichrist. They shall take away his dominion. And verse 26 refers to this judgment that's instituted by the ancient of days. That's God our Father. In verse 27, it's talking about this kingdom that is guaranteed by God will be everlasting. All these other kingdoms have failed. It will be the only kingdom that is ever everlasting. Remember, the angel started talking in verse 17. And this concludes him talking. The phrase, my cogitations trouble me, in verse 28, actually translated, caused my color to change. Like his face, all this, the angel explained it. And Daniel was troubled because it's hard for him to grasp all this. There was no book of Revelation, right? It was, it was just hard for him to, to but, and we should be just as troubled by the complete lack of understanding by the modern day body of Christ. I, saw, I just saw a man considered, you would call him one of the top five leaders in the Word of Faith movement. He does not come here, so don't, don't be going there. Oh, is it? No, he doesn't come here. He says he has no idea what's going to happen in the end. Well, I think we know what's going to happen in the end. I think the Bible's pretty clear. And again, it doesn't make me better than him. I would be happy carrying his bags on a missions trip. So I'm, you, you, sometimes you have to spit out the sticks and eat the hay. And I'm not criticizing him. I'm just saying there's a total and complete lack of understanding in the modern day body of Christ. So from here on in chapter eight, the book of Daniel reverts back to Hebrew. The rest of the book is gonna be very prophetic with more detail, but more of the focus is on Israel rather than the Gentiles. And next week I was gonna do Daniel eight, but I'm thinking about it, the war in Ezekiel 38, because that's the next thing I think we're really going to see. We are going to see that. You have to see that that is coming. And with that, can we just, just 
Let's run communion really quick here. Okay? But, but focus, commune. Thank you, Lord. While they're handing it out, I'm always saying, you know, your youth can be renewed as eagles through taking communion. I'm going to show you where, where I get this. Because it's in the Bible. Okay? This is out of, I'm reading, word for word, Joseph Prince's uh, Health and Wholeness Through Holy Communion. Okay? This is Joseph Prince. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, 20, 11, 29, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Okay? Notice this whole thing of scripture starts out, hey, Corinthians, many are seek, sick and weak among you and many die in early death. Why? Not discerning the Lord's body during communion. They're just taking communion. They were getting drunk on communion. They were, they were, they were using the bread to eat dinner. Okay? So they weren't understanding the real meaning of communion. And he said, that's why many of you are sick and dying an early death. So will you flip that? What happens if you discern the Lord's body correctly? It's health and wholeness. If you don't desert it, it can be judgment. Okay? But now listen. He says, take, eat, this is my body in Corinthians. It's in red. Letters are in red in Corinthians. Take, eat, this is my body, which was broken for you. Then he says, as often as you do this, do it often. Do this in remembrance of me. He's telling you to remember me during communion. So can I just read this excerpt? Judgment in verse 29 does not mean God's anger or wrath, as I used to think. In some circles, people still believe that judgment refers to God sending them to hell. That's incorrect interpretation. The Greek word used here is krima, which means divine sentence. When Adam sinned against God, a divine sentence fell on the human race. Weakness, sickness, death, and some effects of that, or some effects of that sentence. As long as we are here on earth, our bodies are subject to the aging process, which is part of the divine sentence. All our bodies decay every day. Our brain cells are dying daily. Holy communion is God's solution to offset the decay. Even if you're, even your friends will see the results. They'll begin to ask you, hey, why do you seem to look younger and younger? You never seem to age. One day, when we get to heaven, we'll, we'll have brand new bodies that never grow old, never tire, never look bad. Meanwhile, the Lord's Supper is how God helps us offset this process of aging and walk in divine health. Every time you take communion, you are reversing the effects of the divine judgment because you're discerning his body. Could we put the sculpture up? Remember he said, take, eat, this is my body. It's broken for you. He says, remember me. Okay? You're reversing the effects of the curse or divine judgment in your body when you take communion. Wow, John, you just know. Me and John had a little sign there. Signs up. Okay. I'm going to, um, wow, I got myself in a little quandary here. Okay. All right. 
Listen, just bear with me, okay? It'll be shorter next week, okay? It'll be shorter next week. You'll see. You'll see, okay? Look, before we do this, right, just take this into your spirit right here because it's all about healing. Jesus called, the, the, the Syrophoenician woman said, will you heal my child? He called healing children's bread, okay? Jesus is the Lord of our lives, Sickness and disease have no power over us. We are forgiven and free from sin and guilt. We are dead to sin and alive unto righteousness. We are free from unforgiveness and strife. Sometimes you need for, to forgive to activate the healing. Okay? For the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. Therefore, we're dead to sin and alive unto God. By his stripes, we're healed, made whole. Jesus bore our sickness, carried our pain. Therefore, we give no place to sickness or pain. God sent his word, word and healed us. Father, because of your word, we're overcomers. We overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. You have given us abundant life. We receive that life through your word. It flows to every organ of our bodies as we commune with you, bringing healing and health. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body that was broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. I see, I see, him. I see him just hanging there with every disease, every cancer, with, with failing kidneys, with, with everything you could possibly diagnose with these hands. It's on him. It came, I bore it with every stripe that ripped through his body. You get stronger and stronger. And I always do these scriptures with, with the blood, you know, being redemption, is we receive absolute remission. For, that means forgiveness and cancellation. Look it up. Of every single penalty, of every single sin we've ever committed. That's what he did for us on the cross. We receive the fact that we are established in the gift of the righteousness of God. And in triumph, we are restored. That's the scripture. He took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant. Cut my blood as often as you drink it. Drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord. We, we receive the fact that you view us like we really, really died with you. you. We really, really hung on that cross, just like Jesus. He views us like we're buried in that tomb, just like Jesus. He views you like you were risen from the dead with Jesus. That's how he views you. See it. See yourself. If he views you like that, you see yourself. He views you as you took it all yourself. That's why he was our, he, he was our, what's the word? Our replacement, right? He replaced it. He took our place. So God views it as if we were there so we can have all that that he did. That's communing with God. Communion is just communing with God. 